It's great to be surviving in this business. It's something I've been wanting to do, been struggling over, actually, for the past 20 years. Been at various radio stations in and around the greater Boston area. Um, I've also been writing a column at Newsmax.com. I'm writing books. I've published, self-published, and had published 15 books since I started here. And uh, might as well talk a little bit about uh, the manuscript that I'm working on right now, which is something that my, first of all, my, my, my literary agent tells me that this book has a lot more commercial potential than my past books because it deals with, I don't know, I guess you might say somewhat of a sexy subject. Uh, and that is the history of American assassinations, uh, political assassinations, that is, not, not personal assassinations. A political assassination is when someone is assassinated for political reasons, they, because they are in the way of, um, of someone else's vision for politics. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of intrigue around it. Um, I mean, a personal assassination is if someone is taken out because of, of money or because of, uh, you know, the, the CEO of a corporation and someone wants their job. I mean, that's the stuff of, of uh, crime novels and of TV shows like, uh, like you know, Columbo or um, Law and Order or, or others. But I write about political ass assassination and I start in American history with Alexander Hamilton, and I come right up to the modern times when I look at the, uh, the Clinton body count. And I ask the question, first of all, the, the Latin question, qui bono, who benefits? Secondly, and but secondly, but equally, I ask whether or not there was an assassination. In some cases, it's been adamantly denied. In other cases... I could look at something that appears to be maybe an assassination, but isn't. And um, I look at, and then of course there are the ones which are absolutely known to be assassinations, like the um, the killing of uh, of President Lincoln or the killing of President Kennedy. I mean, those those were done in broad daylight and with witnesses. There's no question that was an assassination. Um, others are not. We're not so sure. You know, like uh, President Zachary Taylor uh, eating a bowl of cherries and, and uh, ice cream at a 4th of July picnic and dying about maybe a week, two weeks later from a stomachache. That one, do we know if it's an assassination or not? The history books adamantly deny it, but there's always been rumors and it's always been somewhat understood that it was. I look at that. I examine it. Was it or wasn't it? And if so, I look at the third spoke in the wheel, which is, was there a conspiracy? What is a conspiracy? A conspiracy is when two or more people come together to do something that is either illegal or deceptive. Um, that's when you engage in a conspiracy. It becomes a conspiracy when something is done. I mean, if you get a bunch of people sitting around a room talking about, you know, killing somebody, that's not a conspiracy. 
until they do something, until they put something in motion. There has to be some kind of an action to turn it into a, a conspiracy. Otherwise, it's just a lot of blabber. It's a lot of talk. And um, I look in American history at some of these assassinations and, and possible conspiracies, and I'm up at this point to the assassination of, of um, William McKinley. Now, that was no question an assassination. It was done in broad daylight. He was shot at the Pan American Exposition in, in Buffalo, New York, on um, I think it was August or September of of two thousand of, of 1990, 1991. He was a very popular president. He had won his reelection handily, and he um, he insisted on going out and meeting people. He did not like a lot of security around him. And he wanted to go to the fair and stand in line and meet people and shake people's hands. And even though his chief secretary, George Cortelieu, urged him not to go, tried to cancel the trip because he was afraid of assassination, um, McKinley went forward anyway and went, and sure enough, he was killed. And the guy that, that killed him, um, Leon Kozgov was a an anarchist by his own definition and and a radical by today's standards we would say he was a communist um and he um if you take a look at his background he he began to join radical movements and go to radical speeches after he was laid off from his job due to a labor dispute in Cleveland, Ohio, I think it was in 1873 or around that time, it was during the Depression. And um, he got involved in radical politics and he joined radical societies, secret societies, like the Sila Group, which was a Polish radical society. Um, he attended a speech delivered by Emma Goldman, who was an anarchist radical. And um, afterwards, he approached her, asked her if, he, if she could make recommendations to him about reading, and, and he tried to befriend her. And to a certain extent, did befriend her. And he went to the house meetings, and he was just, he was deeply involved in, in, um, in what, what in its day was, was a radical movement. I mean, a, a, you know, the, the anarchist movement. And, uh, and he killed William McKinley a week after... An anarchist, Gaetano Breschi, assassinated the Italian King Umberto I um, and declared his, his, um, the assassination as being a great you know, leap into the sunlit future and that this is good for working people. We've got rid of another you know, bourgeois head of state and we're going to move toward um, a communistic world and everything is going to be redistributed equally and all that stuff. And um, there had been an outbreak of these sorts of assassinations all around the world at that time. I mean, I, I, maybe not the world, I would say probably more in the Western world, in Europe, um, in that the Tsar Alexander was killed in 1881 um, the wife of the Austro-Hungarian emperor, uh, Franz Josef, was, was killed 
in Paris, that being Princess Elizabeth. Um, and, um, and there were other examples of anarchists killing heads of state. It, it had become uh, a, a thing to do. And it was a week after that that, um, that Kolgos killed President William McKinley. And um, he was, it's, it's interesting that he was, he was, you know, in broad daylight, as I said, there was no question. It was witnessed by many, many people. It was at a public fair. He was convicted and executed. I think it was. It took about less than two months after after the um, after his act, and he um, he made a weak and feeble attempt to to claim insanity, just like the guy who killed Garfield. It didn't really fly because he consciously and knowingly knew what he was doing when he did it. Um. And when he went to the um, the electric chair, before you know, his last words were, "I did this for the people. I did this for you know the the great and glorious revolution. I don't regret doing it." And then and then that was that. Um. And so the question that I ask in my book, as I go over each of these cases, is: Was there a conspiracy involved? Was um. You know, was he set in as part of a conspiracy to overthrow the government or to kill um, McKinley for whatever reason? And technically, on the surface, my conclusion is that it was not. I don't think that Emma Goldman or, or anyone else or the cells that he was a member of, I don't think that they ordered him to go in and do it. Um, I think that it was, however, a conspiracy in the broad sense, in the sense that communism is a conspiracy. It may not necessarily be literally a conspiracy where people sit around and plot to do something, although it can often be that. But it's a broad conspiracy in that it involves a, a way of thinking that is conspiratorial. It's secretive. It seeks to overthrow the government or overthrow the social order. And it's willing to use violence or any means necessary, as Malcolm X might have said, to accomplish those goals. So in that sense, it absolutely was a conspiracy. I mean, the entire communist edifice is a conspiracy. You, can do, you need look at nothing more than the Communist Manifesto written by Karl Marx and other books. Every page, every chapter, every paragraph is dripping of conspiracy. We have to overthrow the law. We have to overthrow the existing social order. Indeed, when you get down to it, we have to overthrow reality. We have to overthrow existence. We have to change the nature of, of, um, of reality. Everything is based on perception. And, um, you know, the, the entire theory is a conspiracy against nature, frankly, against the social order. Now, Obviously, in America, we, we, accept, we accept democratic principles, which is that we can change the social order or we can change the way we govern ourselves in the form of our government through an orderly process. It's called elections. You know, it's called that then we give people a limited grant of power to represent us and they have to operate in a context of laws which is what the Constitution is. 
But we don't try to overthrow reality. We're not creating a new order. And that is exactly what um, Kogos did when he killed McKinley. I mean, he was conspiring in the broad sense. He may not have sat down with someone and said, I'm going to do this and here here we go. But the fact is he was part of a movement where everyone thinks alike and the movement itself is a conspiracy and by and self-admitted i mean this isn't me saying this i mean you can you can look at any of their texts so so mckinley was killed by a conspiracy to create a world order or a new order in america one where you would have a collectivist world things like private property family belief in god uh, all the institutions, you know, right to free trade and goods and services, right to ownership of of of, uh, of goods and services, uh, you know, you know, all the institutions that have made this country what it is, and that in a sense foster freedom because, frankly, they are natural to the human being, even though they should be regulated. All of these things would be overthrown by the anarchists. And replaced by a collective world where everyone is de facto equal. There is no inequality, which they view as unjust. There is no person that has more than someone else. I mean, Karl Marx you know, encapsulates this idea in the Communist Manifesto where he throws out the slogan, from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. In other words... You have, if you have more ability than your neighbor, you don't get to keep the the fruits of that ability in the in the economic sense, even in the spiritual sense, because your neighbor has less, he needs more, and therefore, in order to have a fair society, you have to give over your extra abilities or the fruits of those abilities to your neighbor. Why? Because he needs it. That's why. Not because he did anything for it. And, um, and thus you have this really bizarre and artificial world where everyone becomes de facto equal. Of course, the problem with that, not that it could ever exist, it can't. And if it did, it would be a world that would be so evil and so disfigured that we wouldn't even, we, we, we'd probably all die. And we wouldn't even know what, what was happening. Um, in fact, a lot of people have died in the quest for this uh, and ugly, in an ugly way. Uh, think about Hitler, for example. Anyway, putting that aside, um, you have basically the the complete loss of any institution that that causes inequities, and that that when you get down to it, is freedom. Because if we're free, that means we're free to be different. And when you're different, you're not equal. You know, I mean, uh, I don't think that you know one of my heroes growing up was was Kali Stremsky, the the Boston Red Sox. I played baseball, you know, and, and I would have loved to have been as good as Kalia Stremsky, but I couldn't be because I didn't have that kind of ability, you know, on that particular field on the, of, of endeavor. And that's just the way it is. That's life. That's what, you know, the way existence works. Uh, you know, we have governments that protect the minority. That's what American governance is all about. Uh, from the excesses of the majority by recognizing that ultimately all beings are created in the image of God, all human beings, both men and women. 
And as such, we all have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We all have the right to, to um, conduct our lives as we see fit. That's what governments do. They ensure that because that's the natural order. You know, we don't want to have a situation where the, where the weaker members of the society are killed by the, 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 the more powerful. You know, I mean, of course, Karl Marx developed this into a conspiracy of, of, of exploitation, which is a fundamental conspiracy theory of the left. And that is that by nature, because you might be more successful than your neighbor, you might have more than they have, you therefore are taking something away from them. You're exploiting them. And, of course, that's completely false. I mean, on the face of it. You know, first of all, resources, abstract resources, uh, the mind, the creativity, the, the ability to imagine, that's endless, that's limitless. I mean, we, we have no way of knowing how far man will go if he's free. There's no finite, you know, material abstract material i mean there's there's finite material but when i say abstract material i mean money money is as infinite as the human imagination for karl marx money was a finite commodity that had to be redistributed since there's only so much of it i mean it's obviously not true money money is an abstract expression of what a society or what an individual produces and thus it's infinite we have no idea how much money we can make, if you will, as a society, if we're, let, if we're allowed to be free. I mean, Bill Gates and, and um, the late Steve Jobs and, and, and those guys created money where it didn't exist before by creating those incredible companies that turned into engines of, of, of accomplishment and creativity and imagination and manufacturing and... Uh, communication they they employed tens of thousands of people and made people rich at all levels including the, the, the factory worker you know creating a job where it didn't exist and in the process they created money money had to be printed to keep up with them because that was money is a reflection of production if they had not done what they did or if computers had not entered the scene, then we wouldn't have as much money. It's that simple. Um, you know, it's not a finite commodity. This is why I support, by the way, not to get into another subject, but I support constitutional money, not, not um, commodity money like gold or silver. I think that obviously has a place in a monetary system because it's a stabilizer and it's a conservative fallback in case as society abuses the ability to create money. But nevertheless, ultimately, money is created by a government, um, and it reflects the values of its people, both physical and, frankly, spiritual. And so if a society creates more goods and services and, and requires more trade in goods and services and more businesses, then that society makes more money. And the government is, is their responsibility to create the money, and 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 then issue it into the into the economy. Um, I have no problem also with with banks creating a certain amount of money as well, if they want to take the risk of doing so, um, and if they you know if they're willing to deal with the consequences of that with some government backing for for innocent investors. But that's a bigger subject.
let me bring it to the present because as I was rushing over here this morning and I'm running late and I came in a little late to the studio and I really didn't have a chance to prep and I, I didn't even take my computer out of the case and I left my cell phone in the car and I'm running and running and running. I, I didn't have a lot of chance, time to think about about what I wanted to talk about here and I don't have anything in front of me to read so I'm going to get into the the brief thoughts that I had as I came in here. Because I'm thinking about my book, which is about assassinations, um, I was thinking about what does that have to do with what's going on in politics right now? Well, leaders were assassinated because they either bucked the establishment trend and threatened that establishment by exposing it or by implementing a better idea in a way that would lead to its erosion, or they themselves were change agents and that that, uh, the establishment wanted to preserve rightfully its position. But um, either way, there there is a political element to the killing. I mean, nobody made any money from killing William McKinley. It was political. Whether someone sent Cole goes up to do it or not is beside the point. Well, for what I hear, that's what's happening right now with President Donald J. Trump. Now, I'm not here to suggest in any way that he might be assassinated at all. What I'm here to suggest, though, well, maybe I I, I kind of might be concerned about that in that right now, There is an all-out, open, all-hands-on-deck war against President Trump. Um, It's not just the liberals. It's not just the Democrats. It's not just media figures like Rachel Maddow and others. It's it's also liberal Republicans like John McCain and and, um, Lindsey Graham and... um, you know, people like that, Marco Rubio. And it's the whole rotten liberal establishment that has been built up in this country for well over a century. It's all of their international friends. It's the top 1%, like Occupy Wall Street might have called them. It is the money people. It is the bankers. It is the multinational corporations and their heads. People like, you know, Google and Facebook and, and, and whatnot. Costco comes to mind. They are all at war against Donald Trump. They want to take Donald Trump out. Now, that doesn't mean, therefore, that they want to assassinate Donald Trump. Although there has been indications that violence has increased against people who support Trump. Look what happened to Congressman Stephen Scalise. Everyone says that guy was crazy. Not really. He was a liberal activist. Um, And, you know, so yeah, I mean, that's obviously out there. But I think that right now, with the way things look to me, 
they want to, at best, take him out by impeaching him. And if they can't do that, they want to at least hobble his efforts by distracting him, by creating such a cloud of, of confusion around him, a miasma of confusion, that he's not going to be able to function. He's not going to be able to conduct his, his agenda. And so they concoct these, these conspiracy theories about the Russia collusion and all of that. These things are all lies. and Everyone knows it on the inside. They're all lies. And, um, and that's not working out for them so well. So what they're doing now is... And by the way, there are people inside the Trump administration who are traitors to him and who are releasing embarrassing information or, or releasing things they know would be... It's like throwing a little piece of meat to a lion. Um, so what they're trying to do now is they're attacking his, his children because they know that this is President Trump's most vulnerable flank. He, you know, his own family. He's a family man. He cares about his children. And they know that if they can attack the children, they can get after They could get to him. They can maybe force him to resign. And believe me, I mean, you know, for the past couple of nights in particular, um, ever since WMAX went off the air, so I don't have um, Tim Constantine and Michael Savage to listen to right now. So I'm listening to MSNBC and I'm listening to Rachel Maddow and the guy that comes on after her and uh, people like Dean Obidala from, from um, Progressive Radio. And um, Michael Signorelli and um, Stephanie Miller and all of these leftist commentators. And I think that anyone even casually listening to these people knows, and they reflect this establishment, that they're trying to take Trump out. They want to take Trump down. They're not, gonna, they're not just opposing Trump. They're not, they're not bringing up legitimate issues where they oppose Trump because they know they'll lose that. They just want to take him down. They want to take him out. You know, they've even said, I mean, you can hear on the edges, they said, they've, they've said to people who support President Trump, like myself, they're like, well, you'll still have Mike Pence, right? We just want to get Trump out. You know, they don't care. Now, w- what is that about? And, and, and boy, are they harsh. I mean, talk about Rachel Maddow, oh my God. I mean, it's like, standing in front of a firing squad. She just, you know, and, and it's a lot of it is just this sort of flimsy innuendo and she has all the, the mannerisms and memes of the left. The same cackling and the giggling and the smirks and the, you know, the nastiness. And, um, and so doesn't the rest of them. I mean, not just her, although she's, she's quite good at it. I mean, she's brilliant. It's like the energy level. It's like, you know, it's like Napoleon, it's like Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon. I don't know. It's, uh, it's, like, it's like General William Tecumseh Sherman plowing his way through Atlanta, you know, on his march to the sea. You know, so this is what it's like every night with her. And, um, you know, they hate Trump personally. Oh, that's quite clear. I mean, the way they talk about him, you know, and his 
his wealth and his lifestyle and his family. Oh, they just despise Trump. And that's, you know, the same way they might have hated any anyone that doesn't genuflect totally to the left. You know, like the way they might have hated Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush. But with Trump, it's more than that. It's like they despise him because he actually does threaten the entire leftist edifice going back 100 years. So they want to take him out and they want to replace him with Mike Pence. And Mike Pence, you know, he's just your typical conservative Republican. He's no different than George W. Bush or, you know, Bob Dole, you know, Mitt Romney, John McCain. You know, he's he might throw out an occasional conservative comment. Maybe he doesn't agree with gay marriage. Fine. They don't care. It's just your typical Republican. Uh, Donald Trump is not the typical Republican. He's not your typical, you know, we, we know how how phony they are anyway, because we now know that they had no intention of repealing Obamacare. They just gave that lip service every year so they could get reelected. They didn't expect to have a Republican in the White House who actually would try to do it. Now that they do, they're, they're proving to, you know, we're finding out. They don't want to do it. They had no intention of doing it. And under Mike Pence, they wouldn't have to do it. They probably won't do it anyway. But the point is that with Trump, it's a different thing because Donald Trump is a revolutionary figure. Donald Trump actually stands for some things that oppose this establishment. That's why they have to take him out. And what are those things? Well, first of all, Donald Trump is the first president of the United States in history who is not a politician. He's never been elected to office before. He's not a general, which is a political position. He's not a cabinet member. He is not in the political business. He's not, he doesn't understand or he doesn't, want, he doesn't agree with how the, the system works. Um, and, you know, as such, he, he comes in there with the eye of an average citizen, of a businessman. He believes in the concept that political power emanates from the people, not from this, this political establishment. I think he represents the idea that rights come from the creator, not from the state. That is the cornerstone of American life. That's the cornerstone of our system of government. That the, the, uh, the, the political leaders who we elect are citizens. They're not professional politicians. They go into office to serve, and then they go back home to the farm when they're finished serving. That's the ideal of our system. That's who Donald Trump is. He has been a businessman for his entire life, and he's been very successful at it for the most part. And now he has decided that he wants to serve because he wants to give something back to the country that he loves, that has offered him the, app, the platform where he can be as successful as he was. And he's getting older. I think he's 70. And he feels like at this point in his life, he wants to give something back. That's why he's president. Not because he, you know, he's not like obsessed with power like the Clintons or or somebody like a John Kerry. 
he's not like an you know he doesn't need i mean people portray him as needing to have this big ego push and maybe a little bit but you know not really he's had that he's done that he's been a public figure for the past 30 years he's got plenty of if anything this experience is is the opposite i mean you know i mean if 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 trump had been part of the establishment if he'd been a liberal democrat it would have been like obama he would have been on the cover of 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 the magazines 20 30 times by now his wife would have been held up as the most glamorous beautiful woman in the world which she probably is but she would have been there would have been glamour articles about her every other day she's got nothing they they've done nothing for that for for melania like that you know, Jared Kushner and, and his daughter Ivanka would have been the gl- most glamorous couple in the country instead of vilified. So, you know, the, the presidency hasn't done anything like that for him, and he knew it wouldn't. He's doing it because he wants to give something back. And as such, he cannot be controlled. He cannot be manipulated. You know, that's this is what partially what this whole cockamamie... Russia thing is all about the, the you know they use we're used to having presidents who are beholden to somebody special interests you know I mean uh, whether it be financial interests or political interests whatever they're part of the system Donald Trump is not that you know it's amusing to hear leftists complain about uh, Citizens United decision on the Supreme Court which allowed for corporate donations to uh, political campaigns when Trump took practically none. He was completely self-funded. He just did it as an individual. He stood up and went out and did it. It's an amazing story. Whereas Hillary Clinton and certainly Barack Obama and, and Republicans as well, but more so with them, they are complete creatures of the corporate system. They took untold amounts of money in corporate donations. I mean, look at Elizabeth Warren here in Massachusetts. Her campaign for the U.S. Senate got more outside corporate money, I think, than any campaign in the history of the state. These are corporate entities. They're, they're completely beholden to the interests of corporations. And their, their, their political careers reflect that. Whereas Trump isn't. He's not beholden to anybody. The corporations, Wall Street, they've never liked Donald Trump. So they concoct this whole Russia thing. Oh, he's beholden to, to Putin. You know, it, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a desperate attempt to try to, to claim this. Anyway, so Trump cannot be controlled. And Trump stands for certain principles that are anathema to this establishment. The most fundamental one of all is that he believes in national sovereignty. He says he wants to place America first. He believes in making America great again. And as such, his path toward that greatness is a reassertion of our national sovereignty. That is what the left despises. 
That is what the establishment despises. They don't. They they cannot get their minds around that because they are so enmeshed in this idea of world order, of turning the United States into a a, a kind of a province of the world, as if that's going to serve anyone's interest, which it's not. So they hate the fact that Trump, as an independent, is waking people up to the very progressive idea of national sovereignty, that we put our nation before other nations. We put ourselves before other people. We put our family before other families. We put our local community before other local communities. That is just how reality works. Of course you put yourself first. Of course you put your nation first. Everyone understands that. It's just like, it's no different than an animal in the animal kingdom putting themselves first. You ever try invading a bird's nest? A bird knows property. That's their turf. That's first. You know, try going to a space of a dog and see what happens. You know, the animal kingdom understands this. It's, it's, it's hardwired into who we are. It's common sense. It is, it is a basic component of existence then you put your own interests first, right? Only when you do put your own interests first can you then turn around and help others. It really works that simple. So these are normal, natural tendencies for human beings to embrace. But it's not what the establishment believes. The establishment, influenced by Marxism, influenced by the ideas that led Leon Kolgos to kill William McKinley, their their idea is that you subsume your your interests, you sacrifice your interests for the good of some other vague, unnamed edifice, unnamed entity, as if that's going to help anybody. And that the idea is that America should subsume its sovereignty, its greatness, its independence for the good of some other entity in the world. I mean, they believe in the one world and colony is what they believe in. Everyone is de facto equal. And so Donald Trump stands up against that as a single man. He reminds us of who we are as people, who we have aspired to be as a nation putting our own interests first and once we establish that then helping change the world by helping others who have less than us. That is the paradigm. That's, that's what America is. It's what we're all about. And he's independent enough to do it. And that's why they want to take out Trump. He wants to have relations with other nations in a context where we, our interests are first, in trade, in diplomacy, in culture, in every other aspect, economy. He wants America to have the better deal. And other nations will then know where they stand and they can negotiate with us so that both sides benefit. But America has, if America is to enter into a deal, it is from a position of strength. It's from a position where we put our interests first. 
Donald Trump has stood up to international Islamic terrorism in a way that no other president has done. I mean, certainly I'll give credit to George W. Bush. He did do this. But Trump really does identify the nature of this enemy. And he contrasts their way of life and their philosophy with our superior way of life and does so without apologizing. That is a shock to the establishment. I don't want to go too far into that because this is, you know, a radio station that that won't permit me to do that, so I'm not going to. But anyway, these factors combine to create a situation by which President Trump, by reminding us of who we are, sovereign citizens under God, granting a limited power to our government to serve us, putting our nation first, just like we put ourselves first, that they must take him out. This is why, and they get a guy like Mike Pence. He's nothing like this. He's just conventional. He's establishment. But they must take Trump out. And when I say they must, I really believe that they are doing everything they can to destroy him. I'm not suggesting anyone's going to assassinate him. I don't think they want to do that. I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, if Trump overcomes this whole cockamamie Russia conspiracy, which is completely ridiculous, then who knows what could happen, what, what, what they might resort to. So, I don't know. But right now they're focusing on this cockamamie Russian conspiracy stuff. Oh, he was spying for the Russians, you know. He's controlled by the Russians. I mean, it's, it's, it's projection because they've always been controlled by special interests, as I've said. And so you get this left-wing FBI director, James Comey, really ratcheting things up, going after Trump with investigations. And by the way, the idea of a president squelching an investigation is nothing new. Bill Clinton squelched several FBI investigations into his dealings with communist Chinese operatives, um, you know, sending money to the DNC and to his White House. Oh, he just had them crushed, right? But Trump, he wasn't trying to crush the investigation. He was just asking um, Comey to maybe maybe lighten up a little bit on, for example, General, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, who had been forced to resign because he had had some shady dealings with Russian businessmen. I get that. It's too bad. That's alleged. I mean, he probably did. Even so, he should not have... I, I think Trump should not have asked him to resign because it, it created blood in the water. But he did, and then, you know, he then fired Comey because Comey... Um, you know, he just, he was out to get Trump. And, I mean, certainly Hillary Clinton would have fired him in two seconds because he was out to seem, apparently he didn't like her either. Um, and the result was that Comey, who had apparently taken top secret FBI documents out of the office, which is, by the way, possibly a crime, 
that were meant to embarrass Trump, he then took those things and he peddled them over to the New York Times through a surrogate. And the New York Times, of course, published these things. Trump then said that um, he wanted to fire Comey anyways, even if his assistant, Attorney General Rosenstein, said that he, sh- he shouldn't. Attorney, assistant Attorney General Rosenstein said that he should. And Trump, you know, he should have left it at that, but he has a tendency to run at the mouth a bit with the, with the emails or with the Twitter. So he stepped in it. He said, oh, or he said, I think he said it on a TV show. I would have fired him anyways. And that led Rosenstein to appoint a special prosecutor who is a very close friend of Comey's. They're lifelong colleagues. He's a mentor to Comey. And now the special prosecutor, Robert Mueller, is just going after Trump. It's put, it's put a, a cloud on the administration. And I don't think that Trump really realistically can get rid of Mueller. He just, we're just going to have to grin and bear it. I, I, I honestly don't think that Mueller's going to find anything worth impeaching Trump over. He didn't do anything. But he might find some things that are technical and, you know, that, that they'll be like somebody will have to be fired. Maybe somebody may even be charged with a crime, I suppose. There might be fines paid. And the whole thing is a mess. I mean, you know, look at look at special prosecutors anyways. Um, I'll give you two examples. The special prosecutor in the Valerie Plame case under George W. Bush. I think he was in place for two years. This guy Fitzgerald spent who knows how many millions of dollars trying to prove that that someone in the Bush administration had released classified information that exposed a a CIA agent. They found nothing. So they ended up throwing the book at this poor guy, this this mid-level employee of the vice president, that being Scooter Libby, um, because he had heard something in 1993 and some conversation in in a hotel. I mean, they got some technical matter where, where he where he didn't remember something exactly right so they charge him with perjury and they put him in jail and then they shut the whole disgraceful thing down and also the um, the Iran Contra special prosecutor Lawrence Walsh played a dirty trick on George Bush Sr as a way to help get Bill Clinton elected one week before the election he suddenly releases after having been in place for I think six or seven years information he calls for an indictment of Casper Weinberger which was ridiculous and false and of course it created though an image of George Bush Sr. as being corrupt and wrapped up in Iran-Contra and then the day after George Bush Sr. lost the election the charges against Casper Weinberger were dropped because they were frivolous. But it had served its purpose. It was a political hit. These things are very political. So the fact that you have this Mueller guy in there who's a friend of Comey and who's a partisan who has stacked his, his office with 
with with Hillary Clinton with big donors and Hillary Clinton people. The fact that he's out there is a jeopardy. It's it's dangerous to Trump, and I don't know if there's anything that could be done about it, other than to continue to expose it for what it is, and and continue to watch it carefully and not let it distract President Trump from his his agenda. And that the whole thing was concocted on a phony premise. That Comey wanted to get a special prosecutor after he'd been fired, maybe for a combination of personal revenge, but also a payback, but also political reasons, because he hates Trump. So he releases this information, which triggers a special prosecutor, and the special prosecutor is his friend. So the whole thing stinks. And now, of course, they're going after President Trump's son, who had this meeting with this Russian woman who was allowed to come into the country by President Obama without a visa, and who attended congressional meetings to try to get rid of this Vernitsky Act, which is an adoption act. It was a boycott of Russia put in place by Obama. And somehow she gets through third party a meeting with Trump's son. And Trump, of course, Trump's son then contacts Jared Kushner, his brother-in-law, and Manafort, the campaign manager, and they have the meeting, and those guys, nothing came of it. But basically she promised to give Trump Jr. dirt on Hillary Clinton. Now, Trump Jr. is pretty naive, I think. I, you know, he's not in public life. He's a businessman, just like his father. And so he's maybe not as sophisticated as you'd hope with regard to these things. But the fact of the matter is that, and I've been there myself because I've run for Congress, and someone actually gave me a dossier on my opponent, Barney Frank. When somebody calls you and says, we've got information, opposition research, on your opponent... You take that information. You know, you know, th- this is a real this is the real world. I mean, this is a hard race. You take whatever advantages you can get. So, while it might be a little unseemly and maybe he shouldn't have he took the information. He did nothing wrong. He's a private citizen. I mean, by the way, the information that I got on Barney Frank, it was given to me by Kind of an insider operative who had been around for a long time. Um, he gave me several files that were well documented, well you know supported, well researched. All of which I could have used in my campaign against Barney Frank in 2004. Some of it was so vile and so disgusting that it makes your hair stand on end. But I decided not to use any of it, just because, not because I'm such an honorable guy, but just because I felt that I, at the time it was, it seemed to me that I was going to lose anyways, and that nobody was going to care, because people didn't care, you know, they just were going to vote for him anyway. Maybe I would have shaved off a few votes, but it would have been damaging to me personally. You know, I had to go on after the campaign, and I would have made myself so hated I mean, as it was, I I was hated afterwards by some people. 
admired by others. But if I had done this, it would have boomeranged onto me and my family, and I made the decision thus that I would not do it, and I didn't, and I disposed of the information. Or maybe I have it salted away in some box somewhere. I don't know. I haven't looked at it since. We're talking 10 years ago. Over 10 years ago, actually. So, Trump Jr. did nothing wrong. I mean, he had the meeting. He was hoping to get some opposition research, which he didn't have. And by the way, that's how lobbyists work in Washington anyways. They have to offer you something. We've got something to show you, blah, 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 because they want to get a meeting. And then they turn out they don't really have much, and they try to push their agendas. That's what seems to have happened here. But, my God, I mean, the way they're blowing this thing up, oh, this is connected to this Russia conspiracy. I mean, it's all based on the premise that there is a Russia conspiracy, which there isn't. I suppose if there was, then it would be an issue, but it isn't. So it was just a meeting. Anyway, we're reaching toward the end of the program. I've had a great time. I love being on the air here. Love this station. I'm looking forward in the fall to bringing in some pretty good guests once once students are back and um, getting into some pretty pretty good issues that, that should um, hopefully educate people, hopefully uh, enlighten people. And um, I guess I shall return the usual time next week. Um, I'm not going to mention where my books are available, but I do have books that are out there. Just put my name in the server, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, and you'll find my books. You'll find my, my column on Newsmax. I don't get paid for that, so this isn't a commercial mention. And also, the program is podcasted. I don't get paid for that either, so that's not a commercial mention. Um, on Chuck Morse Speaks um, at iTunes, Stitcher, and other places. Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. And please have a great and safe afternoon.